You're listening to GGR Pirate Radio. Don't be a juice bag. I'm Mike Lunsford, and this is Stop Me If You've Heard This, a podcast where we dig deeper into the stories you thought you knew. There's a theme you'll notice with most of these Stop Me If You Heard This episodes. They feature 90s rock bands prominently. This is when I grew up. This was the music of my formative years. So it's the music I know the most intimately. I try to mix it up like with the Jimmy Buffett episode because I didn't know much about him going into that one. Same thing with David Bowie. I had heard that Bowie was genius, but I was blown away to find out how true that was. Same thing with Jimmy Buffett. People had told me that his music had substance, but I didn't necessarily believe it until I did the research. Tom Petty, I always loved him. But doing an episode just about him was therapeutic in a way, as his death was like a gut punch to me. That brings me to the subject of this episode of Stop Me If You Heard This, another prominent 90s band, and that's Pearl Jam. Here's the thing with me and Pearl Jam. Just like with Bowie, I know some of their songs. In fact, I like a lot of their songs, but they weren't my favorite. That title was reserved for Nirvana. Pearl Jam was a big part of the music scene in the 90s, selling millions of records worldwide, performing live shows to rave reviews, and becoming the icons of fighting the establishment. This episode will dive into some of the big moments in Pearl Jam's history, but also we'll talk about the biggest fight they had against the concert giant Ticketmaster. Tonight's episode is just like one of Pearl Jam's best-selling albums, Versus. It's Pearl Jam versus Ticketmaster on this episode of Stop Me If You Heard This. One of the coolest things about bands in the 90s is the stories of how they came together and were able to capture lightning in a bottle. Pearl Jam was founded in October of 1990. The core of Pearl Jam, Mike McCready on lead guitar, Stone Gossard on rhythm guitar, and Jeff Ament on bass began practicing together in Seattle in mid-1990. Gossard and Ament were in a band called Mother Love Bone, and they had started seeing some success when their lead singer, Andrew Wood, tragically died of a heroin overdose. They were both crushed, but wanted to get another band together. With the help of McCready, they started looking for a drummer and a lead singer. They asked former Red Hot Chili Peppers drummer Jack Irons if he was interested, but he declined. He did pass on their demo tape to a friend who he played basketball with, San Diego resident Eddie Vedder. Hearing the demo, but waiting until he was done surfing to compose the lyrics. I mean, like, what a San Diego thing to do, right? Vedder came up with what would end up being Alive, Once, and Footsteps off of Pearl Jam's first album, Ten. However, Ten was not the first album Eddie recorded that was a hit. Vedder sent his demo tape to McCready, Gothard, and Amit, and they fell in love, having him fly up to Seattle to audition in person for their new band. At the time, Gossard and Ammit were working on a project with Soundgarden frontman Chris Cornell in honor of Mother Love Bone lead singer Andrew Wood called Temple of the Dog. The single that hit big off of that collaborative tribute album was called Hunger Strike, which we'll listen to right now. Farming babies with slaves on 
The song Hunger Strike became a duet between Cornell and Vedder. Chris Cornell later said of Eddie Vedder that he sang half of the song, not even knowing that I wanted that part to be sung there. And he sang exactly the way I was thinking about it, just instinctively. Hunger Strike became Temple of the Dog's breakout single. It was also Vedder's first featured vocal on a record. Vedder said about the song in 2009 book, Grunge is Dead, I really like hearing that song. I feel like I could be really proud of it because one, I didn't write it, and two, it was such a nice way to be ushered onto vinyl for the first time. I'm indebted to Chris Cornell, Time Eternal, for being invited onto that track. On the 2011 documentary Pearl Jam 20, Vetter stated that was the first time I heard myself on a real record. It could be one of my favorite songs that I've ever been on or the most meaningful. The band was incredibly impressed with Vetter's vocal style and they became a band, but under a different name. Uh, the name was Mookie Blaylock. You 80s and 90s basketball fans might recognize the name. Vetter was a huge basketball fan and the name stemmed from his love of the player. When they signed with Epic Records in 1991, the record company decided to nix the name and then instead went with Pearl Jam. That first album they put together though, it was named 10, which is Movie Blaylock's jersey number. The first big single off the album was Alive, which we'll listen to. When we come back, we'll tackle that name and its hidden meaning. Jam. Pretty weird name, right? There are rumors that it has a sexual connotation, but it definitely does not. In an early promotional interview, Vetter said that the name Pearl Jam was a reference to his great-grandmother Pearl, who was married to a Native American and had a special recipe for peyote-laced jam. In a 2006 Rolling Stone cover story, however, Vetter admitted that the story was total bullshit, even though he indeed had a great-grandmother named Pearl. Uh, Amit and McCready explained that Amit came up with Pearl, and that the band later settled on Pearl Jam after attending a concert by Neil Young in which he extended his songs as improvisations of 15 to 20 minutes in length. So Pearl was a given, jam because Neil Young has a tendency to jam out at his concerts. 10 took a while to get going, but eventually became one of the best-selling rock albums of all time. It was released August 27th of 1991. It finally made the Billboard charts in May of 1992, hitting number eight, eventually topping out at number two. We'll listen to its second hit single, Even Flow, right now. Yeah. 
because of the success of 10, Pearl Jam was on top of the world. They played Saturday Night Live. They were considered part of the Seattle grunge scene with the likes of Soundgarden, Alice in Change, and Nirvana, even though Pearl Jam has a decidedly different sound. Their music video for Jeremy won four MTV Music Awards. It was at this time that the members of Pearl Jam took a stance that bucked what many would have expected. The band refused to make a video for Black, uh, another single off of 10, in spite of pressure from the label. This is a trend that would continue throughout most of their career, kind of bucking the trends of what the music industry wanted or what most bands would do. Eddie Vedder felt that the concept of music videos robbed listeners from creating their own interpretations of the song, stating that before music videos came out, you'd listen to a song with headphones on, sitting in a beanbag chair with your eyes closed, and you'd come up with your own visions, these things that came from within. Then all of a sudden, sometimes even the very first time you hear a song, it was with these visual images attached, and it robbed you of any form of self-expression. Ten years from now, Amit said, I don't want people to remember our songs as videos. So we'll listen to Black, their third single from 10, right now. The members of Pearl Jam grew uncomfortable with their success, with much of the burden of Pearl Jam's popularity falling on frontman Eddie Vedder as they headed into the studio in early 1993. They faced the challenge of following up the commercial success of their debut album, 10. McCready said the band was blown up pretty big and everything was pretty crazy. Released on October 19, 1993, Pearl Jam's second album, Versus, sold 950,378 copies in its first week of release and outperformed all other entries in the Billboard Top 10 that week combined. Wow, pretty impressive. The album set the record for most copies of an album sold in its first week of release, and we're going to hear one of the big hits off of the album, and that is Daughter. Table in an otherwise empty 
And speaking of the success of Versus, Paul Evans of Rolling Stone said, Few American bands have arrived more clearly talented than this one did with 10, and Versus topped even that debut. He added, like Jim Morrison and Pete Townsend, Vetter makes a forte of his psychological mythic explorations, as guitar Stone Gossard and Mike McCready paint dense and slashing backdrops. He invites us into a drama of experiment and strife. That's quite a poetic way of describing that Pearl Jam was pretty dope. The band decided, beginning with the release of Versus, to scale back its commercial efforts. The members declined to produce any more music videos after the massive success of Jeremy and opted for fewer interviews and television appearances. Industry insiders compared Pearl Jam's tour that year to the touring habits of Led Zeppelin and that the band ignored the press and took its music directly to the fans. During the Versus tour, the band set a cap on ticket prices in an attempt to thwart scalpers. This foray into fighting the man would have them going against the biggest concert selling entity in the world, Ticketmaster. But first, let's listen to another hit off of Versus, and that's Dissident. She nursed him It was 1994. Pearl Jam was one of the biggest acts in the world when it came to the music scene. They had an amazing debut album. Their follow-up album was selling like wildfire, but the band was not resting on their laurels. They were fighting on all fronts, as their manager Kelly Curtis described the band at the time. One of those fights was taking a swing at Ticketmaster. Reporter Chuck Phillips broke a series of stories that showed that Ticketmaster was gouging Pearl Jam's customers. The band was outraged when, after it played a pair of charity benefits in Chicago, it was discovered that Ticketmaster had added a service charge to those tickets. Pearl Jam was committed to keeping their concert ticket prices low, but Fred Rosen of Ticketmaster refused to waive the service charge. Since Ticketmaster controlled most major venues, and Pearl Jam was furious with the company because of their price gouging, they refused to play venues that had those exclusivity deals. They were forced to create from scratch their own stadiums and rural areas in order to perform, often playing soccer fields, state fairgrounds, and other makeshift performance areas. Pearl Jam's efforts to organize a tour without the ticket giant collapsed, which Pearl Jam said was evidence of Ticketmaster's monopoly. Yeah. 
something familiar yeah I can't seem to place it cannot find the candle of thought to light your name lifetimes are catching up with me I'd seen the place, but no one's ever taken me. Hearts and thoughts, they fade, fade away. Hearts and thoughts, they fade, fade away. An analysis of journalist Chuck Phillips' investigative series and a well-known legal monograph concluded that it was hard to imagine a legitimate reason for Ticketmaster's exclusive contracts. The author said, The pervasiveness of Ticketmaster's exclusive agreements, coupled with the excessive duration and the manner in which they are procured, supported a finding that Ticketmaster had engaged in anti-competitive con conduct under Section 2 of the Sherman Act. The United States Department of Justice was investigating the company's practices at the time and asked the band to create a memorandum of its experiences with the company. Band members Gossard and Amit testified at a subcommittee investigation on June 30th, 1994 in Washington, D.C. Pearl Jam alleged that Ticketmaster used anti-competitive and monopolistic practices to gouge fans. After Pearl Jam's testimony before Congress, there was a bill written requiring full disclosure to prevent Ticketmaster from bearing escalating servicing fees. Pearl Jam's manager said he was gratified that Congress recognized the problem as a national issue. The band eventually canceled its 1990 summer tour in protest for these practices that Ticketmaster was using. While the fight with Ticketmaster was raging on, Pearl Jam released their third album, Vitology, to the same sort of fanfare and amazing sales. It sold 877,000 records in the first week alone. Even when fighting the monopoly that was Ticketmaster, they still had time to release an album that was not only critically acclaimed, but was selling at amazing rates. Here's a single off of Vitology, Corduroy. When we come back, we'll talk more about their battle with Ticketmaster.
So let's talk about that bill that Congress tried to write up. It was defeated, thanks in part to the efforts of two high-powered lobbyists hired by Ticketmaster. That left the Justice Department's investigation as the band's best hope. For more than a year, department staffers interviewed artists, managers, tour professionals, Ticketmaster's competitors, and box office staffers to determine if the exclusive contracts violated antitrust laws. Then, on July 5th, with much of the Capitol empty for the Independence Day holiday, the Justice Department issued a two-sentence statement that said its investigation was closed. In response, Ticketmaster said, in Rolling Stone, Getting attacked by a superstar rock band is a lot like being accused of kicking your dog. There's a general presumption of guilt until proven innocent. Luckily, the facts were on our side and we prevailed. What a smug response. Pearl Jam was bitter about the decision, and after the Justice Department dropped the case, they still continued to boycott Ticketmaster, refusing to play venues that had contracts with the company. The band tried to work around the exclusive contracts that Ticketmaster had by hosting charities and benefits at major venues. The exclusive contracts often contained a clause allowing charity event promoters to sell their own tickets without those pesky service charges, which was the crux of the argument in the first place for Pearl Jam. Their Ticketmaster boycott didn't stop their record. Vitology from selling through the roof. In fact, here's a second single off of that album, and that's Better Man. When we come back, we'll talk about some of the fallout from their battle with the biggest name in ticketing, the wins and the losses. Before Pearl Jam's assault, the only debate about tickets in the concert industry was how high could prices climb? There were big names like the Eagles or Rod Stewart or Elton John, Billy Joel, who were breaking the barrier um, easily over $100 a ticket, and service fees were never even mentioned. Pearl Jam helped turn the tide by leading a wave of young platinum-selling bands vying for the lowest ticket price honors, like Green Day, The Offspring, Stone Temple Pilots, Soul Asylum, Hootie and the Blowfish, all huge names in the uh, in the 90s, and Live. Um, they kind of fought it out to see who could get the lowest prices because they knew that ticket prices were insane and they wanted their fans to be able to come to their shows. In some cases, these bands sacrificed a portion of their own profits, but P Ticketmaster always made token gestures by cutting its service fees. The charge was $1.50 per ticket for at least one Offspring show, and the company all allowed some fans to buy tickets by mail without any service fee. Live successfully lobbied for at least one outlet on each of their tour stops to be able to sell tickets with no service fees. So in spite of their loss, they did make a difference. However, there were losses as well. 
Drummer Dave Abruzzi was fired just after the recording of Vitology. The band cited political differences between the drummer and the rest of the band members. Like, for instance, the big one was that Abruzzi couldn't understand the Ticketmaster boycott. In fact, he was very upset about it. I thought they were losing a ton of money, which they did. He was replaced by Jack Irons, who had connected Vedder to the rest of the band some four years earlier when they started. In spite of their loss, Pearl Jam did continue their boycott against Ticketmaster uh, going into their 1995 Tour 4 Vitology, but they were surprised that virtually no other bands joined them in solidarity. Pearl Jam's initiative to play only at non-Ticketmaster venues effectively, with a few exceptions, prevented it from playing shows in the United States for the next three years. Uh, Jeff Emmett later said, We were so hard-headed about the 95 Tour, we had to prove that we could tour on our own, and it pretty much killed us, killed our career. Not only did no other bands join in their boycott, the band also suffered some bad luck. That June, Pearl Jam was scheduled to perform to 50,000 people at Golden Gate Park in San Francisco after they had installed chain link fences, put up a stage, sorted out porta johns, all that stuff. They had to do all of this because with no support from Ticketmaster or any other big name like that, they had to do all of this on their own. Several hours before the concert started, Eddie Vedder was rushed to the hospital for food poisoning. He went on stage but could only get through a few songs. Uh, Neil Young, actually was watching in the wings, filled in uh, the rest of the set. With Vedder still weak, the band was forced to cancel the next five dates, the bulk of that summer's tour. However, they did find a kindred soul in Neil Young. Um, he's infamous for having that stick it to the man, fight the system sort of mentality. So they really did find somebody that they connected with in that aspect. Pearl Jam actually helped out Neil Young too. Uh, they backed him um, on tour and in his album Mirrorball and contractual obligations prevented the use of the band's name anywhere on the album, but the members were all credited individually in the album's liner notes. Two songs from that session were left off of Mirrorball. Uh, that was I Got Id and Long Road. These two tracks were released separately by Pearl Jam in the form of the 1995 EP Merkin Ball. We'll listen to I Got Id right now, and when we come back, we'll talk about our takeaways from this episode.
in the end, arguably the largest rock band at the time fought the law, and the law won. Pearl Jam clearly felt let down when other artists refused to join their boycott. Part of this was reputation. The Seattle music scene did not get behind Pearl Jam during their fight with Ticketmaster. At the time, Pearl Jam was widely disdained in the cradle of grunge for being the corporate mainstream yin to Nirvana's aggressively independent punk rock stylings yang. Many saw it as their attempt to show people that they weren't just some corporate shills. But they took on the company and ultimately failed. It became a cautionary tale for anyone daring to go up against the forces that hold power in music. This is a battle in which not even the biggest bands in the world had a chance. They failed to gain support because the other bands didn't want to take the hit on revenue that Pearl Jam was adamant was a moral stance. Pearl Jam were clear too that this was about fear. They feared that one or two mega corporations dominating live music was going to be something that would haunt them for years. And yet, having done their best, they eventually accepted the reality that stared them in the face. And soon they were organizing their own tours with Ticketmaster as well. Every concert they'd done in the last 20 years or so has been sold through the ticketing giant. A uh, quote from Eddie Vedder um, recently, this is in, in 2009. What we were trying to say was this could get worse if somebody doesn't fix it right now. Um, it was referencing the Live Nation and Ticketmaster merger. And apparently it looks like we predicted the future. In spite of their loss, the band still was easily one of the greatest and most influential bands to come out of the 90s. They had sold nearly 32 million albums in the United States by 2012, and by 2018, that number had climbed to 85 million albums. All music editors, Stephen Thomas Earlwine, referred to Pearl Jam as the most popular American rock and roll band of the 90s. Pearl Jam was even inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame on April 7th of 2017 in its first year of eligibility. They were ranked at number eight in a reader poll by Rolling Stone magazine in the top 10 live acts of all time. What I gained from this Stop Me If You Heard This is a much higher level of respect for Pearl Jam. Any medium such as the music industry to turn down the easy money of a yearly tour because of your moral compass is something few others can say they did. They stood up for their fans, demanding that increasing prices for tickets was unacceptable, and even fought for merchandise to be affordable at their shows. As I mentioned before, I was a Nirvana kid growing up, and at that time I felt you had to pick sides, but now as an adult, I respect the hell out of Pearl Jam for doing what they did. A musical act that turns down millions for their conviction is a rare thing, one that also puts out as much good music as Pearl Jam did and continues to do so is even rarer. 
As always, the bulk of my information about Pearl Jam was gained initially through Wikipedia, which led me to articles in Rolling Stone, Entertainment Weekly, All Music, Billboard, and much more. That will do it for another episode of Stop Me If You Heard This. My name is Mike Lunsford, and thank you for listening. Been Pirate Radio Network Production Juice Bags. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, boy. <laughs>